Good morning. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that through it you cause us to be born again to a living hope by the power of your resurrection, by the working of your Holy Spirit, that you have called us out of darkness into light. And so today we say again, give us light, bring us illumination, that the words of the page may show us not simply theology or good ideas, but that we would see the face of Jesus Christ in every word as the fulfillment of all of Holy Scripture. Be with us today. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you want to open to page 791, that's where we are in Haggai. That's in the Pew Bible. 791 Haggai chapter 2. 1876. It's a year that, upon first impressions, appears to have about as much immediate significance to everyday life today as this obscure passage from Haggai that we're in this morning. If that were the first scripture verse you ever heard, and this is your first time to church, don't worry, we'll unpack it. But it's kind of a weird verse. Where is it going? Well, happily, as it turns out, both our passage today and the year 18. 76 have an impact, a significance that goes well beyond their seeming surface level obscurity. 1876 was, was a huge year for the United States. It was the 100 year anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And to celebrate, there was a huge fair held in Philly. It was called the Philadelphia Centennial Exposition. Now, we've got a fair going on in Arlington these days. I think it's like three days long. This fair went on for seven months, and it had tons of amazing expositions, inventions, shows, displays. Many things were debuted there that changed the world. In fact, at the fair in 1876, Alexander Graham Bell displayed and presented the telephone for the first time ever. It was also the year that he got a patent for it. Equally important was the unveiling of the best condiment ever, Heinz ketchup, which got its start in 1876. And then one lesser known item was debuted in, in kind of a curious place in the agricultural hall. A new plant. Everyone was excited about this plant. It was called the kudzu vine. Some of you have gardens. The kudzu was an instant hit, if you would believe it, at the expo. It was pitched as a beautiful, ornamental, decorative plant that should be in every garden on the northeast. Beautiful purple flowers, an aromatic, attractive, sweet smell. And so, partially because of the steam it collected at the expo, it started to pop up everywhere in every garden down the east coast. Everyone had to have a kudzu vine. And another benefit was the farmers between the 1930s and the 1950s in the United States were struggling with topsoil problems. There was dry winds sweeping across the country, making agriculture really difficult to have a good harvest. And they found that the, the kudzu vine was excellent at combating topsoil erosion. 
And so all the farmers planted it throughout all their farms on the southeast of the United States of America. It rapidly spread everywhere. But while the telephone proved to be a game changer for communication, and Heinz ketchup was a godsend condiment to the culinary world, the outward beauty of the kudzu vine revealed itself to be a deceptive type of covering. What looked like a blessing underneath was a curse. Now known as the vine that ate the South, <laughs> how wrong they got it in Philly. The kudzu vine is one of the most invasive weeds known to man. It's known as a structural parasite. The kudzu grows one foot each day and can grow up to a hundred feet when it's fully mature, and that's just one vine. And as the vines grow and proliferate, they do interesting, terrible things. They cover mature trees and kill them. They take down whole power lines, and they can even take down whole houses. To date, the kudzu has infested over 7.4 million acres of land across the southeast, just of the United States, and it's caused annually $1.5 million of damage to power lines and power companies, all while emitting its signature surface level, sweet-smelling aroma, and eye-catching beauty. It looks like a blessing, but it kills like a curse. Haggai 2 shows that after returning from exile in Babylon, Israel had developed a problem, a spiritual kudzu of their own. Verses 10 through 14, you heard it read, show that the lack of God's purifying presence from a ruined temple never rebuilt, this had caused the people to gain the status of unclean. Now when you come back from exile, you're expecting blessing, not curse. And yet here the people are unclean in the land, which in the Old Testament means you're separated from the sanctifying holy power and presence of God. Unclean exiles returned. Then in verses 15 through 19, we see that Israel was still receiving the covenant curses. What do I mean? Well, you heard the bit about the vine, the pomegranate, the fig tree, and the olive tree. In all the Old Testament, especially in Deuteronomy chapter 8, many places, the lack of these things is code for covenant curse. The people had returned from exile expecting blessing, and yet they were unclean in the land. The people had returned from exile expecting a blessing, and, and instead they received a curse. Psalm 80 refers to Israel as the vine of God that's going to flourish in the land, but instead the chosen vine has become the cursed vine. The cursed vine that Joel talks about as dried up and languishing. Yes, the vine that ate the south became the vine that consumed the heart and soul and spiritual interiority of Israel, leaving God's people cursed and unclean. And so as we dig into the text today, we're going to look at it in two parts. First, we're going to explore the cursed vine. And then we're going to talk about the cure of the gospel vine. That's where we're going to land today. So open to Haggai chapter 2, and I'm going to read from verse 11 as we get in. Hear the word of God again. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil of any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. Verses 10 through 14 in Haggai can be summed up in this way. Defilement spreads like a contagion, but holiness does not spread like a contagion. That's the whole point of of those whole verses. And it really boils down to this. What's the problem with holiness spreading in that way? To cavalierly spread holiness like a germ into areas that were thought of as unclean or common or unconsecrated, well, that would be to take the pure and to make it become profane. Holiness is not a contagion, Haggai wants to say. It's not a contagion, it's a magnet, and a magnet that's meant to draw people towards the holy God in his holy temple. Only, what was the problem at this time in Israel? If holiness is temple-centric, then there is no holiness when there is no temple. And this is where Haggai ends up in verse 14. Every work of their hands, everything they offer, is unclean. Now, this holy meat that Haggai talks about that baffles the mind when you read it the first time, what is he talking about? Well, this is the meat of ritual sacrifice, the sacrifices that made unclean people to be right and pure with God. And where were the sacrifices meant to be eaten? In the temple. But again, there was no temple. It had been paused for 16 years. And so we get what verse 12 gives us. And remember, whenever you hear repetition in the Bible, especially in the Hebrew Bible, that's a literary cue for you to really listen and ask, what is the author trying to say through that repetition? Two times in verse 12, we hear this curious phrase that a man is asking about carrying holiness in the fold of his garment. And if he touched the fold of his garment, will that make other things that he touches holy? It's almost like he wants to, to carry holiness like a hidden takeout dinner under the cover of his garment and bring it home. It's sort of the equivalent of an ancient Uber Eats. Roughly. And I'm paraphrasing. What's really going on here? The temptation for Israel and the temptation for us really is to privatize holiness. Our Christian faith becomes like a, like a kind of religious commodity that we can carry around under the folds of our garments We prefer to carry our consecration incognito. We like to kind of smuggle our holiness home into our private paneled houses where it can't get us into too much trouble. We like to say things well-meaningly, like preach the gospel, but when necessary, use words because we think, you know, maybe if I'm quiet but I just live a good life, my Christianity will inadvertently rub off on people and they'll say, hey, it must be Jesus. But friends, Haggai's main point here must be heeded not only by Israel then, but us today. A holiness that is hidden can never point to God. It can never point to God. It always only ends up 
looking like generic niceness that ultimately points to ourselves rather than to Jesus. Have you heard about paying it forward? Some of you might have done that. It's when you, you, know, you, you rock up to a drive-thru and the cashier says, the person in front, of, in front of you has paid for your meal. And you kind of go, okay, they've done a random act of kindness. This was a big thing a couple of years ago. People sometimes still do it. What never happens when someone pays it forward is the cashier saying, answering the question, who paid for this? And the cashier saying, it must have been Jesus. That's my only conclusion. No, they say, this guy in the Subaru Outback in front who, who just went there. By the way, what is it with Northern Virginia and Subaru Outbacks? <laughs> I've never had a Subaru, never wanted one, but I came here and I bought one. It's like contagious. It's like the kutsu. Now, here's, here's the problem. Random acts of kindness are great. They're wonderful. Being kind and compassionate and merciful is wonderful. They're not uniquely Christian. And they don't give glory to Jesus if nobody knows that Jesus is the genesis of those acts. You can't just sense that off somebody. By hiding our Christian faith in the folds of our garments, holiness itself, Haggai says, becomes unclean. It's like the Israelites who tried to take home manna in the wilderness and hide it in their tents, hoping that they'd wake up with the fruit of holiness left over. But all they ended up with was a festering spiritual rot. Holiness that doesn't point to God is a non sequitur. It can never lead to sanctification. It's an invasive kutsu vine sucking the life out of everything underneath it, leaving a spiritual wasteland of impurity in its wake. Now you may hear that and go, great, that's kind of me. <laughs> It's hard to live in the world. And by the way, I'm not talking about evangelism. Remember two weeks ago we talked about evangelism? Evangelism's great. Do it. This is talking about simply living openly and naturally as a Christian. Living as a Christian. As a fundamental part of your life. So that, so that people would know if they talk about you, oh yes, this person is a Christian. They wouldn't have to infer that from a long list of hints that you're trying to to leave them. But the problem is many of us, myself included, have difficulty in this culture doing that. And when, what I want to challenge you to do when you hear this is be willing to ask yourself, is our Christian faith something that is inseparably woven into every aspect of our lives such that people would know it's central? Or is it something that we can switch on and switch off, turn on, and turn off and then put back underneath the fold of our garment. A few thoughts here. Oftentimes we do this because we think it's the humble way. It's humble. It's like the gentle Jesus. We don't want to offend people. But friends, hiding faith is not humility. It's a form of unintentional, disingenuous, non-truth-telling. We so prize authenticity and realness and being yourself, but we're afraid as Christians and we would prefer to give a redacted version of ourselves. Thinking that, hey, maybe down the line, holiness will taper out and make itself known. 
We only need to look to the model of Jesus to see if this is the right way we look at Jesus. And Jesus never said anything, right? He never gave a hard word. He never gave a word of compassion. He never overturned a table. I'm not saying you should do that. Don't do that at work. Or at least don't do it because I said. No, Jesus did all these things. Look, he wasn't afraid to rock the boat. He didn't go out there trying to be obnoxious. But Jesus was a truth teller. And so part of being a Christian in a culture that is diverse and pluralistic is not hiding our faith below our garments, hoping it'll rub off on people. It's learning to live out our faith in an integrated way. And I'm going to talk about one example of how we can do this. This is about a million, but I won't go there. One way that we can do this, I want to suggest, is by learning to say the weird things in normal ways. You know what I mean? I was talking to a friend this week, and we were like, everybody's afraid to be weird. Honestly, I don't know why. Every great movement in history, every piece of art, every song, somebody thought it was weird eventually, right? We've talked about this before. You can't get around the weirdness of Christianity, can you? You can say it in the most reasonable way, but it's weird. It's strange. Reason doesn't just automatically take you to revelation. The Holy Spirit needs to step in and make those claims saving and captivating and powerful. A Savior born of a virgin. A dead man who walked out of an empty tomb on the third day, right? A God who works miracles and heals. Causes us to be born again by His Holy Spirit. Well, this is why Paul says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You can't just deduce your way to salvation. You have to have apocalyptic inbreaking of the Holy Spirit revealing it to you. Yes. So one way we can remove the garment fold methodology is by learning to speak in normal ways about weird things. And here's an example of how that works. I was at a public swimming pool in Boston, Massachusetts a couple weeks ago. I was up visiting family. It was in uh, Cleveland Circle, which is right in the middle of the city. Great pool, barely anybody there, free, great time. We're swimming with the kids, and there was a bunch of, I'd say like 13, 14-year-old middle school boys in there. And some of the more mature ones are just swimming in the pool. But some of the ones that were more like me when I was 13 were doing cannonballs into the pool. And these were the ones that caught my attention because not only would they do cannonballs, but the one guy would shout out some absurd, bizarre statement and then jump in the pool. So the first one I heard him shout out was, I am Chewbacca, hear me roar, cannonball. That caught my attention because I'm a Star Wars fan. And then he said, I am the king of England, cannonball. And I was thinking, I like this guy. But then he said something that surprised me. He said, I am the Lord God. And then he was going to go cannonball. But he noticed his friend in the pool. And the most strange thing happened. He said to his friend, oh, 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 did I insult you? I know like you're, you're I think you're, I know you're a Christian. Was that insulting to you when I said that? And I was like, this is interesting. <laughs> We go from blasphemy, blasphemy to cannonballs to philosophy inside a city pool. Okay. And you know what the kid said? He said, look, it's not something that I would say. I'm not judging you for saying it. He said something like, for me, I believe in Jesus. And I would never say that because it wouldn't be in line with what I believe. 
But man, go back in the pool. Do your cannonballs. And then the kid just said, cannonball, and jumped back in the pool. And I thought to myself, this is what it looks like to say the weird things normally. That kid didn't probably wake up that morning and think, someone's going to ask me about Jesus in the Cleveland Circle pool. I've got to be ready to switch on my evangelism side. Christianity was so integrated into the fiber of his being and in the courage of his willingness to share that it was his natural response in the midst of that. And so, man, I think one of the beautiful things is when we can respond in a measured, gracious way that leaves the door open for friendly conversation and doesn't hide Jesus away, tuck him into our clothes because we're afraid, we too can have that same kind of witness. He did it at age 13. It took me into my 30s to even start to get anywhere close to that. I think that's a good lesson to us. If you're a middle schooler, if you're someone going into high school, I know school is starting, and you're going to be throwing many things this year, and many things probably on your mind right now. Psalm 24 says, this is the generation that will ascend the hill of God. And I want you to know that when it's speaking to that generation, it's not saying when you graduate someday, then you matter. It's saying you are the generation that will share Jesus with the world, and we are that generation as well. Hear that message. We got a lot to learn just by listening to the younger people among us. One of them is how to share the faith, in this case, and the other was don't get in the way when people are doing cannonballs, but that's the least important of the others. Now, when I used to share what I did in Australia, people would say, what do you do? And I would take the tapered approach. I'd take the hidden fold approach. I would say, I am a professor of ancient Greek language who is, has an expertise in Greco-Roman religion in the first century. <laughs> I was like, that will get me at least a couple weeks before they find out what's really going on. The old bait and switch. Was that my job title? No. My job title was a lot more confronting. Professor of New Testament and Christian theology. But I felt that the time to tell them that was to, to ruin the rapport I might grow with them or to establish a relationship would shut it down. But I think the truth is, as we have seen, hiding holiness does not lead to the glory of God. Hiding holiness shuts down honesty and truth-telling and your ability to integrate Christianity into your whole life. So the cursed vine is a vine that hides holiness. And again, you may hear that, and you may say to yourself, okay, John, here's the deal then. A new school year is coming up, good time to start new disciplines, and you may say, let me get things straight before I start to share my faith in that way. And we, you, you might say things like, I'm going to, you know, focus this year on conquering anger. That's a good one, right? And once I get that done, then I'll know I'm, I've kind of, I'm the real deal, and then I can share my faith. Or you might say, when Lent comes up, or Advent, I'm going to focus on two things. Two things I'm going to focus on. I'm going to focus on purity, and I'm going to focus on self-control. That's what I'm fixing my eyes on. That's what I want to grow in. I'll focus on the virtues, or I'll focus on these two sins. I'm going to fight these two sins. I am going to do this. But there's a problem with that preliminary approach 
that you put in front of the system of sharing the gospel. Here's the problem. The law diagnoses that you have a problem, but it's the gospel that cures the problem. By returning to virtue list first and foremost and saying, that's what I'm going to fix my eyes on. By staring at the sin and saying, get better and get better. You tell me, does that work every year? When is it enough? I'm so patient. I'm trying hard to be patient. But the end of that rope is disappointment. Because I haven't, it's like one of those temperature metrics when you have a, a thermometer and you're doing a, a fundraiser and you say, is it going up? My, I'm getting more patient. It's almost at the top. You're never satisfied when you do that. Why? Because you're not satisfied from staring at the diagnosis. You don't return to the diagnosis to cure the disease. You flee to the physician. When you spot the first signs of a flood, an impending catastrophic deluge, you don't run towards the water. You run in the opposite direction, into the ark for safety. When a tornado comes... A tornado cannot be tamed by taking it head on. Its destructive force can only be overcome by seeking safe harbor away from the storm. By doing that, you're not abdicating your responsibility to grow. You're just saying, I could never grow unless I first am linked to safety that comes through Jesus Christ. We're called not to hide our holiness. We're called not to fixate on our own problems, but to fix our eyes on the better vine who will bring us to true holiness. The New Testament talks about it this way. It says, you were washed. What tense is that verb? You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. It doesn't say sanctify yourself, justify yourself, wash yourself. It says you have been washed already. Therefore, your identity and your position and your relationship to God is clean. It says in Hebrews that we have been sanctified through Jesus' offering. And it also says that we're being sanctified. It's almost like who we are in Christ, in position, is becoming true of us in disposition, but not as we walk alongside Jesus doing half the work and giving him some of the load, but as we flee to the physician and first find a cure. And the gospel is a cure. Many of us hear this good news. We hear, you are no longer cursed. Hallelujah. You are inheritors of the blessings of Abraham. Hallelujah. You are clean in Christ, if you say so, John. And we feel a momentary rush of hope. But that hope is soon tempered by a lingering dose of the harsh reality. I don't feel blessed. I don't feel clean. If you knew me, if you saw me as I am, you'd think he's not cut out for this. You might even think he's cut off from this. When a person studies for a long time, they do a bachelor's degree, a master's, and a doctorate, people often jest with them. They, they kind of knock their shoulders and they'll, what do they call those kind of people? What kind of a student? A professional student. Maybe you've been called that before. I don't think it's a compliment. I've been called it. I kind of feel like some of the time, I'm not only a professional student, but a professional exile. And I'm willing to bet I'm not the only one here that feels that way. 
We've walked with Jesus through the Red Sea. We've walked through the wilderness. We've come to the promised land by being born again through the Holy Spirit. And yet, inside, right, we feel like we're missing the fullness of the blessing that Jesus has for us. Like we're exiles in perpetuity. Like we're exiles in the pews. Like we're exiles in the pulpit. I remember when we were getting ready to leave Australia, we had to make our house look really nice because that's what you do when you know the landlords are coming. And for whatever reason, the guy who did the shrubs didn't come for the two years that COVID happened. So what happens when you do that to the shrubs? They grow. In this case, they went from two feet tall, in some cases, to almost 10 feet tall. I mean, that's, that's really bad. I probably should have cut them earlier. But I thought, wow, they look so lush and beautiful and flowing and flowered. There's purple flowers all over them. They smell good. Of course, what happens? I start to, you know, take care of the shrubs and there's no shrub left. The Australian version of the kutsu vine, something even worse, I mean, this vine had tentacles on it and it was sticking to the house, had killed and smothered every shrub on that property. All that was left was a pile of dead weeds. The shrubs had like a, a skeletal shrub thing with no leaves on it that looked worse than that Charlie Brown Christmas tree. It was bad. And the first thing I thought is, what am I going to tell the landlord? And the second thing I thought is, this will be a great sermon illustration. It's, it's not a total loss. It's going to benefit. And then once I cleaned the shrubs, I looked and there were these trees and I said, all oh, these wild trees have grown. I should cut them down. And so I did. I cut these massive branches off. And what did I see? The shrubs were dead. The trees were gone. And it looked horrendous. It looked like there had just been a total drought in the land. There was no vegetation left. And so I did the only thing I could think of, which was to take the leaves and the branches and just stand them up where they used to be. <laughs> and it actually looked pretty good. It was a work of art. And I thought, this will do for now until I have to get rid of them and put them in the compost bin. And you know, sometimes feeling like an exile in your soul is kind of like that. You feel like a broken branch that's just sitting there, supposed to be getting nourishment, but where is it? An exile that says, the cursed vine has decimated my soul. It's left me in shame and guilt. What's done is done. I, I've severed the branch. I've propped up the tree. What's done is done, shouts the broken branches in lament. Severed, broken, cursed. Cursed is my lot. What's done is done. But what we know from Scripture is not a gospel that says what's done is done, but it is a Savior who says what's done has been undone. You, broken branch, have been engrafted back into the olive tree. You who decimated the garden paradise have been covered like our forebears in the garden with the fig trees of grace by the God of grace who says, you will be holy as I am holy. There is another vine, a vine who brings gospel cure and gospel blessing. Cast your gaze on that vine O oh, exiles in my midst, venture not back to the vine that ate the south, 
but fix your eyes on the vine who swallowed up sin and death forever, Jesus Christ. The vine that rescues us from the clutches of the lie that says, I will never be clean. What's done is done. I will never be clean enough. And redirects us to the true vine who says in the Gospel of John, already you are clean. Not if you meet the mark. Not if you measure up. Not sometime maybe in the future. But now in Christ, already you are clean. Not if your progress impresses God. Not if you show great and virtuous promise and progress. Not if you clean up your act first. Already you are clean, declares the Lord. Whether or not you feel it today or you feel it tomorrow. Whether or not you feel like you deserve it in a hundred years from now. Whoever you are, the message of the gospel is that you are clean Become what you already are. And the best way to end a sermon like this is not to hear from me, but to hear again afresh from the words of Jesus Christ himself that come down to us through the gospel of John. What does that vine say to you about your true identity and your true spiritual reality? Hear him as he calls you, maybe for the first time today. May it be so, Lord. Or maybe for the first time in a long time. Hear what the true vine says. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Let us pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that we're the family of God, that we baptize new Christians into this family and call them away from the alluring lies that cover them up and consume them and into the loving arms and reality of the gospel. The true vine, Jesus, the vine who has defeated death and who gives us nourishment and life. Wherever we are, link us to that vine and help us to have everlasting life through it to your glory and our joy in you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.